It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in the second of our summer specials, we're breaking out of the news cycle to take a look at some of the big policy questions facing the UK. This week, we'll be looking at devolution and infrastructure. Over the last decade, there's been a big shift in Britain away from centralised power in Westminster to empowering local government with directly elected mayors, extra cash spending powers. But at the same time, promises were made to improve the nation's crumbling infrastructure, particularly in the north. We're going to be discussing how much progress has been made with the so-called devolution revolution and, crucially, what is still to be done. I've joined by some very fine public policy experts to dive into this today. Andrew Adonis, who is head of the National Infrastructure Commission, a Labour peer and former FT public policy editor. Julian Glover, a journalist who was a former special advisor in the Department for Transport. Plus Brian Groom, who is a former senior editor at the FT, who now resides in Manchester. Thank you all for joining. Devolution is a word we hear a lot used by politicians as a good thing, but it can also be a way of skirting around those difficult spending and political decisions at the centre of government. Why take a decision nationally when it can be taken locally was the mantra of one former minister. The march of passing down power symbolised by George Osborne, the former chancellor, who held his Northern Powerhouse project. Railways, investment were all part of this brave new agenda. But since the arrival of Theresa May in Downing Street, the focus has shifted onto the so-called Midlands engine, another form of devolution. The core question of all of this is, do these grand schemes mean anything? Are they actually helping to rebalance the economy and improve people's lives? So, Andrew Adonis, let's begin on this overall concept of devolution. Why is it a good thing? The modern devolution movement started with Tony Blair's decision to create the office of Mayor of London in 2000. And you may remember at the time this was regarded as a bold move by some, but others were deeply worried. And William Hague famously poked fun at Tony Blair by saying that Ken Livingstone would be both his nightmare and his daymare. In fact, far from being a nightmare, Ken Livingston proved to be a model for all other mayors. When he talks about anything other than infrastructure, Ken goes off at a tangent. But on the subject of infrastructure, he is far-sighted, very determined, and knows how to use political capital wisely. In his first term as mayor, he created the London congestion charge, which dramatically cut congestion in central London. He essentially started the Crossrail plan, which is now reaching fruition. He started the London Overground, taking the almost derelict North London line and turning it into a vital transport artery in London. Huge success as well Huge in terms success. of passenger Something numbers. like five times the number of passengers that it had before the Overground came along and massively revitalising places like Hackney and Dalston. And he also accelerated the tube refurbishment programme and doubled the number of and frequency of buses in London and started the move to what became the Boris Bikes. A phenomenally successful mayor and others... In London, continued, Boris Johnson and Sadiq Khan basically continued that strategy. 
And it started to raise the question, why don't we have similar mares and similar levels of devolution elsewhere in England? And that was exactly the right question to ask. I tried to persuade Tony Blair to create mares for the other major cities, Manchester, Birmingham, Leeds, Sheffield, Newcastle and so on. But the politics were just too difficult inside the Labour Party to do that. So it didn't happen. And that, I think, is a good part of the reason why London stole such a march on the rest of the country and particularly the other cities in terms of developing 21st century infrastructure and why we've now got this big debate led by the Northern Powerhouse movement about how the rest of the country catches up. And that's absolutely the right argument for us to be having as a country. So Julian Glover, that's exactly what Mr Osborne did when he was Chancellor, that he sort of fell in love with this idea of the north of England and tried to replicate not all but some of the aspects Andrew said but the London mayoralty elsewhere with mixed success, I would say. Is that fair? I think there was quite a lot of success in that something happened, which in politics in itself is always the exception to the rule. So there are mayors, there's a mayor in Manchester, there's a Conservative mayor in the West Midlands, former head of John Lewis, Andy Street. So they came into being, they're powerful people. The challenge for devolution in a lot of the UK is what do you devolve to? It's always been the battle. Is it regions? How big do you go? If you want to think about strategic transport planning, massive infrastructure projects, £15 billion here, a new railway there, you can't just devolve it to a town hall. You've got to go bigger. And the trouble is, outside London, there aren't that many cities in the UK that really agree on a clear boundary. The West Midlands, they put councils together, they just about got a deal and they got a mayor. Greater Manchester, that definitely works. That's a clear and understandable area. Much harder in Yorkshire. Leeds isn't big enough, it feels, to be devolved to on itself. It's not the same size city as Manchester. But if you include Bradford or you include York, there's talk of putting York in with Leeds. It doesn't feel like a genuine democratic area. Sheffield, too, there's some of those challenges. So I know government has wrestled very hard with what is the body you give the power to. They've set up things like transport for the north, trying to bring councillors together, councils, cities together, to plan on a larger scale. I don't think that's been a huge success so far. It's often uh, looked like a body that's just asking for money from London. So we're getting there. It's not easy to do. You can't just devolve to strategic regions. Labour tried different structures. John Prescott tried different structures in the Blair years. And in the end, local people didn't feel it meant anything to them. Unless you create something real, something that feels like your place, it's not just devolution, it's just a new kind of bureaucracy. Brian Groom, as someone speaking to us down the line from the north in Manchester, and someone who's also watched this devolution process, how successful has it been from your perspective, where we are now, and also what's coming down the line? Because we had the first batch of directly elected mayors with Andy Burnham in Manchester and Steve Rotherham in Liverpool. Well, I mean, I think you can mount an argument that what we've seen so far in terms of devolution within England from this government, you could say it's the biggest act of decentralisation within England for at least 200 years, which sounds very grand. But on the other hand, it's not saying very much at all because it's been a massively centralising period. And we still are seeing some elements of centralising going on in areas such as education. But as you say, the northern powerhouse had two sides. It does link the devolution side with the infrastructure side. There was a bit of Devo Mank and the, the creation of these uh, metro mares around city regions, coupled with supposedly greater infrastructure spending to link them, particularly in the north, and to bring the northern cities together and to create a greater sense of economic agglomeration. But as you said earlier on, it's been patchy so far. Almost from the day George Osborne announced it, there has been pressure to make it fuzzier and water it down because as you initially conceived of it you build it around the cities 
immediately there was pressure from Tory backbenchers, but they were all representing areas of the north and the Midlands that are in smaller towns, in rural areas, and they're saying, why we left out? We could be part of this. So to begin with, the concept became slightly fuzzy, and though we've got metro mayors in Manchester and Liverpool and on Teesside, Yorkshire is a complete mess. There's no agreement there at all. And of course, the devolution goes beyond the north. It's happened in Birmingham, it's happened in Bristol. So far, I think it's been quite bold, but it's very patchy. And we are seeing the two sides linked, of course, now. We're starting to see, it's very new, but Burnham, as high-profile mayor of Greater Manchester, starting to gather together all the leaders in the north to press for moves on infrastructure and to protest against some of the apparent watering down on the transport policies of central government. So we're just getting the stirrings of the kind of pressure that London has been able to build. But I think we've got some way to go. Yes, indeed. And I think this all really came to a head, Julian, with an announcement about the electrification of railways in the north, because as Brian said, devolution and infrastructure go hand in hand. This was an announcement that the Trans-Pennine train line that goes across a very bumpy area of the country was going to be electrified with cleaner, faster, more frequent trains. And Chris Grayling, the Transport Secretary, announced that basically it was too complicated and that this system, it was not worth the benefits. And this was seen as a symbol by those political leaders in the North that actually forget all the rhetoric, forget all the talk. All they really care about is pounds and pennies. And it looked like London didn't really care. It's a real mess and a bad moment. Lots of things were promised to lots of people before lots of elections. And one of the difficulties in Britain is we seem to have elections all the time at the moment. So every time there's an election, governments of different types want to offer new things. They're very reluctant to pull them back. And then you're left with managing the projects. I mean, I live in Derbyshire. On the day, pretty much to the day that the government announced that because of the pollution of diesel cars going into Derby, something I'm slightly dubious about the reality of, but they're going to have charges and banning of diesel cars going into Derby. The very same day, the government announced that there was not going to be an electric railway to Derby, but yes, what a surprise, a diesel railway. So we won't be able to drive into the city, but we'll get diesel trains instead. Things are not joined up. It looks worrying. Across the Pennines, there's a real need for better connectivity. I hate that word, but it means something. Joining of the Yorkshire region and Manchester and Liverpool together with a reliable rail and road service, which doesn't exist at the moment. That rail service ought to be electric. Electrifying the Transpennine Railway is actually physically very difficult. I've sat down with the engineering teams for the Midland Main Line in Derby a few times. I've sat with the Transpennine teams in Leeds. It's really, really tough to do to modern safety standards. So getting it done is difficult. The government didn't actually say what it would do with the Transpennine route. With the routes up to South Yorkshire and Sheffield and to Derby and to Nottingham, the East Midlands matter too. We talk about the North, but we should remember the Midlands. That railway is now going to be electrified as far as Kettering, a town that virtually nobody in Britain has heard of, but it's going to be very lucky and have an electric train service to London, as Leicester and Derby won't. It is a confused situation. I think the government's probably right to pull back in the short term from some of the projects. The costs have got very high. There's too much going on. But what we urgently need now is a strategy, over to Andrew at the Commission, a strategy for what needs to be built in what order and what it's going to do. It's not all bad news. Indeed, there's a lot of very good news around. The single biggest infrastructure project of the next 15 years is going to be HS2, which will transform the connectivity between the North, the Midlands and London. The first new mainline intercity railway we've built in England since 1899. It will halve the journey time between Manchester and London to barely an hour. It'll be half an hour from Birmingham to Old Oak Common, which is the junction with Crossrail. Massive additional capacity and huge regeneration potential this will bring to central Birmingham, central Manchester, central Leeds, Sheffield and Derby. 
Leicester and Nottingham not to be left out. We'll also have what's essentially a parkway station between Derby and Nottingham, which will also bring about uh, huge improvements too. And when people say we can't plan and deliver big infrastructure in this country, HS2 is almost a model of how we do plan and deliver it. We've had a project now that has spanned three governments, and I've slightly lost You count. started this, I think, yeah, when you were in but, government uh, But I think there have been about David five Cameron. secretaries of state since, only one of whom has lasted for three years, who was the one that Julian worked for. That may be cause and effect, but it's not been a long tenure, which most of them have had. But we have managed to keep this project going. The Crossrail project, which is about to be finished in London, also spanned four governments in that case, and three mayors of London different parties in both cases, and it did survive. And I think a good part of the reason why both Crossrail and HS2 survived and others haven't is there was a very good plan to start with. There was a very simple and effective plan for linking the city centres of London, Birmingham, Manchester and Leeds, which are the four biggest cities in England. So it could have been simpler and more compelling as an argument. In the case of Crossrail, it was a very simple plan to massively relieve the central London tube lines and bring in the commuter lines going out to the west and to the east and to provide a direct link with Heathrow Airport, and that also survived. The problem with the North, which Julian and Brian have identified, is that there isn't a plan at the moment. It's not a case that this is all being held up by planning systems and NIMBYs and all of that, which is what often holds up uh, infrastructure. The big problem is that the politicians, unless they get their act together, then nothing will happen, which is, of course, what we've seen over Heathrow for the best part of 30 years now. The problem is that the politicians can't agree on a single scheme. There are a whole set of rival bodies whose job it is to produce the plan. There's this body called Transport for the North, which Julian referred to, but there's also the Department for Transport. There are the new mayors for the northern cities. There's Rail North. Too. There's Rail North. There's a whole plethora of different bodies. And until the government gives a lead and gives a clear mandate to some other body to do the job, it won't happen. In the case of London, there's always a mandate because the mayor of London is sitting there with a million votes and covers the whole of Greater London. And that is still a radically different position than what applies in the north. Now, I unashamedly love trains, so I think HS2 is a brilliant idea, and I think it would be a great thing for the country. Not everyone... You're a very wise man. (laughs) ...agrees with me, though. There's been a lot of criticism, particularly when you take the wider picture of our national finance. And People say, well, actually, wouldn't it be better to do, say, HS3, which is connecting northern cities, rather than that relentless focus on connecting London? Well, we need to do both. They're not either or. We need a plan for connecting up the northern cities more effectively, but we also need to relieve the highly congested West Coast Main Line. And if we don't do it by building a new railway line, what we'll end up doing is another refurbishment of the Victorian West Coast Main Line, costing many billions of pounds. With diminishing returns. And it's partly to avoid that that we're building HS2. I think we think too much in terms of the infrastructure. We love that word. It only came into use in in the last 20 or 30 years. Winston Churchill was apparently one of the first people ever to use it in the House of Commons in the 1940s. We think about the stuff, the physical boys' toys, the projects. We need to think more about what it's for. What are the things we are trying to do? And then we should take the need and look for the best and most cost-effective way of providing for that need. So where do people want to move? Where might they go in the future with business development? What are the places which we need to strengthen? And out of that, begin to think about a transport system that includes road and rail and smaller interventions too, cycling, buses. Buses are hugely important in Britain. They carry twice as many people as the trains and the tubes, so we never talk about them. So we mustn't just focus on the big, expensive, glamour projects, although at times we do need them. And there is a risk that we spend all our time saying, would you rather have HS3 or HS4 or maybe HS7 we could build under the Irish Sea and to keep the DUP happy now that they're part of Mrs May's majority? 
what we actually want to do is where do people want to travel and what do we need to supply it? And if you look across the Pennines, there was an electric railway. It was electrified in the 1950s and shut down in the 1970s and it was turned into a cycleway. So we don't have a decent railway system across the Pennines. We need to improve it. There's a clear need for movement. The roads, there's only one decent dual carriageway between Derbyshire and the Scottish border across the Pennines. It's quite extraordinary. We clearly need to do that better. And from that should flow a discussion of the infrastructure, not the other way around. Brian, what was your experience of moving from London to Manchester in terms of this question of infrastructure? Because we read quite a lot about clapped out trains, blocked up roads, all that sort of thing. Is that an exaggeration or is it true that the North deserves a greater focus than it's getting at the moment? Certainly, there are some real bottlenecks. I actually live very close to one of the stations on the Leeds to Manchester line. On a purely personal basis, I was slightly relieved to hear that electrification might not happen there because it involves raising a bridge over the station, which is the only road into the whole area. So we'll get years of disruption. But I think electrification does at some point have to happen. I don't see how you can do Northern Powerhouse Rail across the Pennines without tackling the electrification issue in some way. But I find that the trains are less frequent than I'm used to in London. They are older, clapped out. The services are not that bad, but they're not that frequent. And it would be unfair, to, as some people suggested, that the government's doing nothing for transport in the north. It did approve £250 million of new trains, which are on order, which should be here by 2020. When people see those where the old paces exist and even older trains on our route sometimes, I think people will see that something is happening. We do identify the need rather late. A lot of people would say that HS3, the Leeds to Manchester thing, should be a priority of HS2, but it was actually only thought of four years ago, whereas HS2 has been talked about for about 15 years and Crossrail 2 for nine years. So we've decided very late that that's the thing that's really going to set the northern economy going. Brian, you're definitely right that there are improvements happening. I remember when I was at the Department for Transport, we had to issue what's called a direction to the Permanent Secretary, who was actually quite sympathetic to our case, in order to insist on new trains for the North, because cost-benefit analysis showed that it was better to keep the old Pacer trains, buses on wheels. And we fought to get that through. And they will be scrapped and there will be new trains and there will be change. But the core challenge is that in the north, people drive cars much more than travel by train. We're having a very London-centric conversation, even though you're happily joining us from the Pennines, in talking about trains all the time. Most people in the north, outside London indeed, travel by car, not by rail. Now, we might want to see that shift. And in some city centres, that will shift. And some interurban transport, it will shift. I've just been running the Wolfson Economics Prize, looking at better ways to pay for better roads, trying to think about the use of vehicles in the future, about electric vehicles, about pollution, and about taxation, because of course fuel tax is going to drop away as petrol goes. And in the north, what a lot of people would like is a road system that works as much as huge amounts of money being spent on trains. And I love trains, and I'm very happy to travel on them all the time, and I use them. But we mustn't neglect the road system. It is the fundamental basis of the northern economy. Some of the most congested motorways, I think three of the four most congested motorways in Britain, are the ones around Manchester. If you commute in from the far northwest out towards Lancashire into the Greater Manchester, you have to drive in at five, six in the morning to avoid gridlock on on those roads. The rail system just doesn't offer a service at all that people can use on those routes. So we need to see investment in that too. Things like the Transpennine Tunnel between Sheffield and Manchester, hugely expensive, hugely controversial, but potentially absolutely a game changer for the Pennines. 
see that as a political possibility because uh, there's only one not very good rail route between Manchester and Sheffield and the road, there are two narrow passes that close in bad weather. the pass designed by Thomas Telford, yes, the great engineer. It's pretty terrible now, but do you think there's a realistic chance of funding either by private or public method a road under the Pennines? Will it survive the environmental protests that will inevitably ensue? That will be one of the longest road tunnels in the country, sorry, in the world. It'll be certainly the longest in the country, and I think that's going to be tough to do. It may be possible, and Snake Pass I've been across, and it clearly is two of the worst connected cities in Europe, Sheffield and Manchester for their size. Though I discovered that Snake Pass, which I had thought romantically was named after the fact that the road snakes across the Pennines, in fact, isn't named after that. It's named after the pub at the top. It's a very good pub. It is a very good one. But the other issue is how we use cars and what's the future of cars as infrastructure, and that's the big issue in Julian's commission. Uber has, in the space of about three years, utterly transformed patterns of mobility in the major cities to the point that lots of people, myself included, no longer own cars because we now see mobility as a service that you buy. And when you can get an Uber turning up in literally one or two minutes, not just in inner London, which always had a passable but very expensive taxi service, but also transformationally in outer London, which now has a taxi service at call, which comes in a minute or two across the whole of Greater London, which has never existed in the history of Greater London, then you could begin to see how transformational change will happen, which isn't just about roads but also about the vehicles that use them and that could lead to much greater efficiency and much greater flexibility in people's approach to vehicles in the future. And this is the same with car share schemes that I'm a member of Zipcar and I used it at the weekend and it really removes the need for a car because if you live in a big city you're not going to use it for commuting because it's not an enjoyable experience and it takes too long. If you have a car share scheme you can get the benefits when you need it but Julian we have got this big question of one electric cars which were very much moving down that route and we heard from the government very recently by 20 2040 is going to be the cutoff date and given that I think it's 10 to 14 years the average car works that's not really that amount of time for everybody to change how they drive and use their cars and the other one which Andrew was referring to is autonomous vehicles and the time frame on that's a bit less clear I think the cities will certainly move in that direction in the next 10 I years. We'll see freight move quickly onto partial automation taxi services perhaps if we can get legal permissions for it for consumers they'll only switch to autonomous vehicles when there's actually a benefit to the customer it isn't really the technology that's the problem that will happen very fast it's the legal framework how do you allow somebody to be in a car without being control of it who pays for the insurance what happens if there's a crash do you need a driving license all sorts of things all for the government to work out the technology will be way ahead of the government and one of the things I'm much more optimistic about the spread of automation than I am about the spread of electric cars, because I think the government will not be so involved in automation. And I think on electric vehicles, the government will be all over it and it will be a bit of a mess because they really can't decide if it's a bane or a benefit or how to raise revenue from it at the moment. But we're going to see huge change in what a car is. The question is, can that spread outside the cities into rural and suburban areas? Andrew mentioned Uber in outer London. I mean, City Mapper are busy launching night buses. City Mapper, great UK tech firm map urban areas and give people fantastic transport information, how to get around London or Manchester, they're now moving into using the extraordinary digital information they've got to launch night buses in outer London, and that will spread outside London as well. So we're going to see stuff happening that doesn't involve the government. And quite a lot of what we talked about today is a very old-fashioned conversation suggesting the state is going to do everything and plan it all, and the commission has a hugely important role, and the state does have a big role, but loads of stuff's going to happen that we didn't expect, that government didn't plan. Uber, as Andrew mentions, Gosh, TfL didn't have that on their horizon. I sat through lots of meetings where Boris Johnson tried to persuade members of the government to ban Uber from London because Boris Johnson didn't like it. I guess he was rich enough to have his own black taxi waiting at the door. And Paris did ban it. 
at, at Germany. So, and there are reasons. You have to look at the business practices of the company. It's got to justify its place as a good corporate citizen. CityMapper, I think, is certainly doing that in London now. And I guess, Andrew, this comes to a wider question, which I'm sure your commission is considering, we've talked about, which is the urban versus the rural. So if you take the devolution in terms of the mayors, they're all focused on cities. And when we talked about these new technologies, they're all focused on cities. Now, if I'm right, population in the UK, people have gravitated more towards cities in the 21st century, where we are now. People have all moved in that direction. But there is a danger that if you're in Derbyshire or where Brian is in the Pennines, you're going to miss out on some of these things. And that will not help with the rebalancing question, which is ultimately where devolution comes from, this idea that London, the southeast, obviously props up a lot of the rest of the UK. Well, we've talked about transport infrastructure, but an equally important area of infrastructure is digital infrastructure. And digital infrastructure is the salvation of the rural economy because it makes it possible to do things and to work and to enjoy leisure in rural areas and to apply that technology, of course, to rural pursuits in a way that can dramatically expand the rural economy and make it possible for people to live more of a dual life, both in the city and in the countryside, than was the case uh, previously. We need to see more of that. When I was at the FT, one of the jobs I held was telecommunications correspondent, and this was now, it's longer than I care to think about, but it was about 25 years ago. And all the rage then was how the cities were going to go into decline, because we'd all be teleworking. There was a guy called Negroponte who wrote a book called, I think it was The Digital Future, which said that the office was about to be disbanded because no one would want to congregate in sweaty, horrible, congested town centres and offices when they could be at home, plug in their computer and their phone and their We've got to sort out the signal and the broadband. I mean, I live in rural Britain and I can't get a mobile signal. I could go 10 miles in my car before I get a signal and the broadband is one megabit. And that's completely right. We need state-of-the-art digital communications and if we get that, then I think that'll make rural areas much more attractive to places to live and work. And Brian, I guess this issue of broadband is one that continues to vex British politicians about how we get that infrastructure in place. And the FT, we've editorialised quite a lot on OpenReach, which is the company that's responsible for the UK's broadband infrastructure and its relationship with BT and why we can't get that better broadband. Would you agree with Andrew that that very much is a crucial thing to stimulate economic growth outside of cities? It's probably the top issue, yes, I would say so, and it's not an easy one to solve, and the structure is a difficult one, and at the end of the day, somebody's got to pay for it, whether it's the taxpayer or the bill payers or the um, the people who live there themselves. I was in Spain a few weekends ago, and the 4G coverage there in a very rural and remote part of Spain that Julian knows well was better than in Hackney. That is the challenge which we face as a country. There's absolutely no reason why we should be falling behind Spain and 42 other countries, according to an international ranking, in the quality of our 4G mobile coverage. And nowhere suffers more from that than rural Britain. Well, we've covered roads, trains, but we haven't covered planes, Julian. And this is another infrastructure question that has come round and round the block and one that Andrew dealt with many times when in government, which is airport expansion. And we seem to have some sort of political consensus on a third runway at Heathrow Airport, which probably should have been built about 10 years ago. And yet we're still discussing it now. Do you think, first of all, will it ever be built? And second of all, is that the right answer? Because Heathrow is a great hub and brings a lot of economic benefits to the UK. Is that the right model in your view? I think Heathrow is the right answer. I think we do need another runway in the southeast. If we are going to have one, we should have it at Heathrow. There is a case for saying the southeast has quite a lot of runways already and we should be developing traffic elsewhere. But if we're going to put one in the southeast, it should certainly be Heathrow. Will it happen? Well, it should, but the government's got to get a move on with trying to understand who pays for it, what the costs are, who understands 
how much the government's going to put in and who benefits from that. I am worried. Somebody I spoke to this morning listed the 12 most pressing issues facing the transport secretary inside the department, and Heathrow wasn't even on the list. So it doesn't seem to be perhaps quite as urgent as they think. And we've talked about the northern devolution. We have a really, really good network of other airports in the UK. In Manchester Airport, I use a lot. It's a massive global airport. Heathrow and the South East is not the only game in town. I entirely agree with that. It shows the importance of cross-party agreement, because the reason why the runway Heathrow wasn't built was that the two major parties disagreed, and it became an election issue. And unless the politicians can agree on big infrastructure, because it takes years, often decades, to deliver, then these big projects fall by the wayside. And what we've shown in the last 10 years is an ability to agree on some things, some major rail projects, the kind we've talked about, Actually, nuclear power stations, we haven't mentioned them, but that's been an agreement between the parties, very painfully constructed, which has enabled with, that to With proceed. the big Hinkley Point project in Hinkley. Somerset, is an example of yeah. that. And though, I mean, there's a lot of critics of Hinkley Point. In fact, the two major parties have agreed that we should get a nuclear power programme restarted. But Heathrow is a standing warning as to what happens if you don't agree. And though Julian is absolutely right that other airports matter too, Heathrow is our major hub airport as, as a country. It's our most important airport by value for freight of any of the ports, that is land ports, seaports and, and airports that we have in the country. And if we can't get that right over the next year, then I think post-Brexit Britain is going to be a difficult place to get in and out of. Well, I'm going to end by putting an open-ended question to all three of you that if we come back here in five or even ten years' time and look at Britain's ailing infrastructure, how confident are you that it will be in a better place and it will have helped to somehow balance the wealth, Julian? It'll be immensely better. Crossrail will be open and amaze the world in London. The North will have better new trains. Some progress will have been made on HS2, but I think there's some big, big problems along the way. I'm not quite as confident as Andrew. It's all going entirely to plan. We will be putting more money into road. The railways will be complaining because they won't have quite got their leadership in gear. And we might perhaps even still be inside the European Union so we can travel abroad. Brian? I think the transport will probably be better in places and will be on its way to being better in other places. But rebalancing will has forever be work in progress. And finally, Andrew? The National Infrastructure Commission will be a cure for all our ills. Everything will be immensely better by then, but it's going to be a painful slog, as it always is, delivering infrastructure. Right back to the years of Thomas Telford, who's arguably invented modern infrastructure, when uh, he died a very disappointed man too. Well, I look forward on that optimistic mode to seeing better planes, trains, rails and all the rest of it. That's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to Andrew, Julian and Browning for joining. We'll be back next week for another policy special and we'll be looking at housing. Until then, thank you for listening. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.